0: Tonight, I'd like to speak about one of the most important distinctions to understand in Dharma practice. And that is the distinction between our concepts and ideas about experience and the actual taste of the experience itself. Because to a large extent, we live in the world of concepts, the world of ideas, and we often confuse the idea, confuse the concept, for the actuality. This is illustrated in one very famous parable in the Republic of Plato, the parable of the cave, in which a group of people are in a cave facing the back wall, And they're chained in such a way that they're unable to turn around to face the entrance. They can only see the back wall of the cave. Behind them is a fire and a procession of figures walking by, engaged in the various activities of life. Because of the fire, this procession of figures cast shadows on the back wall. And all these people have seen for, the, for their entire lives are these shadows dancing in the back of the cave. Because that's all they've ever seen, they take the shadows to be the reality. Sometimes it happens that somebody loosens the chains a little bit, turns around and sees the fire and the procession of figures. They understand that the shadows are not the reality at all a reflection of reality. With even greater effort they manage to perhaps cut the chains and go outside of the cave into sunlight, into freedom. We live very much in the same predicament as these people chained in the cave. What are some of the concepts that we're chained to, that we're attached to, that we don't see particularly as being concepts, as being ideas. There's a whole range. For example, there's the concept of place. The idea that the Earth is divided into separate countries and separate nations and separate states as if boundaries are real. There's one story, I read it in the New York Times about a year or two ago, of some Bedouins living in the Sinai Peninsula. <coughs> they were very clever. They were clever traders. For some reason, Mercedes Benz automobiles were less expensive in Israel than in Egypt. So they bought up a whole bunch of Mercedes Benzes <laughs> <Ben Zayi. laughs> and they took them out to the desert and they buried them on the Israeli side because they couldn't cross the border without paying a lot of customs. As the Israelis were withdrawing from the Sinai Peninsula, <laughs> the border moved back on the border crossed over where the cars were buried they unburied the cars in Egypt
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> this was in the new york times <laughs> they had a very clear understanding that border is a concept we've created it in our minds and yet you know how much conflict there is in the world because of attachment to this idea separate nations. You know how difficult it is to travel if you don't have the proper visa and stamp and your passport. People have invested a lot in that reality, forgetting that it's the construct of our own minds. The earth isn't divided in such a way. A concept which probably dominates our lives more than that one Although, politically, that concept of place plays a very strong role. But in our lives personally, we're very much dominated by the concept of time. We have the idea that past and future really exist. We live our lives as if they exist. Now, when you examine and investigate what the nature of the past is. How do you experience what we call past? We have certain thoughts, certain images, certain recollections, and we put all of these kinds of thoughts or images into a special category We separate them out from all the other kinds of thoughts we have. We give this category the name past. And then very cleverly, somehow, we take this concept and throw it back behind us (laughs) as if the past actually exists back there someplace, that place from which we came. as an idea, as a concept, it's a reasonably clever one, and it has its uses. But in terms of the actual experience of it, the only way we experience past is in the present. We experience it as certain kinds of thoughts, or feelings, or images in the present moment. What is the future? We live so much of our lives in anticipation of the future. What is, what is this experience? Again, we have certain thoughts or certain images, certain fantasies. We pull them out from all the others, we give them a name, we categorize it future, and then psh, that same mental gymnastics of throwing it out ahead of us as if the future as a reality is out there waiting for us. And again, it has its use. There's a certain usefulness to the idea. But what is the idea pointing to, except a certain experience that we have right now in the present moment? Past and future exist now. They don't exist as realities outside the present moment. Can you imagine the relief and the ease in our lives if we can take the burden of time, the concept of time, off of our shoulders, if we could actualize the understanding that past and future are simply thoughts in the present? It would make life very simple we would relate to each present moment in as appropriate way as, way as possible. We wouldn't be caught up, we wouldn't be lost in the past, we wouldn't be anticipating the future, we would be right here, which is where we are anyway. So to look, to, to see for yourself in your experience how that process works, because it's so deeply conditioned And the whole world agrees with it. So it takes some careful looking. If you'd like a little help with that investigation, and you feel ambitious, you might read one very brilliant novel, A Remembrance of Things Past by Marcel Proust. And you have to be quite ambitious, because it's long. The book is about the realization that past is present. And by the time you finish those several thousand pages, you are ready to believe it. (laughs) (laughs) It's an important, it's an important concept to understand, because when we don't understand it, to a very large degree, it runs our lives. Concepts of place, of time, concepts of ownership and possessiveness. We have the idea that we own things. What does it mean to own something? You now, I own a piece of land. We can stand on it. We can build on it. We can dig in it, but what does it actually mean to own it? There's a story by Mark Twain, one of my favorites, in which he tells about some horse traders in Russia. And there's the stories about the villages and the trading back and forth, but the whole story is told from the horse's point of view. <laughs> And the horses never had a single moment's thought that they were owned by anybody. They were in relationship to various other horses and human beings, and some were kind and some were cruel, but the concept of ownership never arose. We've created, we've made, we've made up that idea. The Buddha talked of how we can't even be said to own this mind and body thoughts, stop coming, pain, go away, body, don't die. What kind of ownership is that? (laughs) If If we don't even own this, how can we be said to own anything outside of that? Again, it's a concept, it's an idea which we've created that has its uses. I'm not suggesting that we throw it out, but it's to remember that it's only a concept and so we don't get attached, so attached to it. We use it when it's appropriate, and when it's not appropriate, which is most of the time, we let go of it. We don't dwell in that made-up reality. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. Concepts of self-image and role. We've all created images of ourselves, of who we think we are. An image, uh, the image is very much connected with the role that we play. You know, an image, or role of parent, a child, or husband, or wife, or employer, employee, you know, a teacher, a student, a um, you know, great lover, or coward, or whatever. And we've created this image, this role, and it's like pouring ourselves into a mold. And then we wonder why we feel constricted. Because we're confining ourselves within the image, within the role, that we've constructed. story or two illustrating this. When I was leaving India, for the last time after a long period of practice, I had to go to the tax office to get a clearance form that I didn't owe the Indian government any money. And I had been in India a long time and thought that I was prepared for what was going to follow. go in, I ask for the form, the man behind the desk says, please wait. Sit down, rising, falling, rising, falling, (laughs) sitting 45 minutes, no problem, I'm a meditator. 45 minutes, an hour goes by. I go up to the desk, I say, what am I, what am I waiting for? And he says, the person with the form isn't here. Go back, rising, falling, rising, falling. Another 45 minutes, hour goes by. I go up to the desk, where are the forms? They're in the cabinet, behind the desk. Why can't you give me one? It's locked. Okay, go back. <laughs> rising, falling, rising, falling. Another period of time goes by. As often happens in meditation, sometimes great illuminating insights occur. (laughs) So I go up to the desk again and I say, where's the key? (laughs) And he says, in the desk. (laughs) So I look at him. Well, why don't you take the key open the cabinet, huh, and give me the form. And he looks at me totally straight, and he says, it's not my job. <laughs> Identification with a role. <laughs> That's a very extreme case, but we all do it. You know, we've all created an image of ourselves, and we identify with that image, and then we're trapped by it. One more story about my effort to escape from self-image. Ever since a third grade singing teacher told me just to mouth the words, (laughs) I've had a problem. And so my great creative urges were stifled all those years and reinforced. (laughs) Finally, a few years ago I was teaching in Naropa in Boulder and they had a course listed in the catalog, The Natural Voice. (laughs) I thought, great, this is a new age Buddhist singing class. (laughs) Just what I want. So I sign up, and even in the signing up, I was getting a little nervous, <laughs> but I went and did it. I wanted to break out of this self image or inhibition. So I go to the class, and the first few days, are fine. We do a lot of group singing and exercise, and I was having a great time. A couple of weeks into the class, we had a guest teacher come in, and she taught Balkan folk singing. She had us, there were about 40 of us, she had us uh, line up in a circle (laughs) and she would sing one note and then one by one we had to sing it back to her. I knew that I was in big trouble (laughs) and I don't know whether you are familiar with Balkan folk singing, it's, (laughs) to my ears it was a strange sound. (laughs) Anyway, she's going around, and I'm getting more and more uptight. (laughs) And it's coming closer and closer, and I'm feeling the nervousness. She gets to me, she sings this note. I sing something back. (laughs) It wasn't even close. (laughs) Not in the ballpark. She sings it again, I do something back again. This was a very determined woman <laughs> and she kept singing that note and I was getting more and more uptight and further finally with a great deal of compassion the regular teacher of the class kind of jumped into the scenario and kind of very gradually led me up to the right pitch. Finally when I hit the right note the whole class started to applaud <laughs> and I tell the story <laughs> because the experience for me was, at the same time, rather embarrassing and also very humorous. I I could see the humor of it as I was going through the embarrassment of it. And I appreciated my own efforts and other people's efforts just to put themselves out on the line. You know, at those places where we feel closed in by our self-image, closed in by the role to be willing to take some risks. And it doesn't mean necessarily going out in some life-threatening situation, although maybe some people would be inspired to take that kind of risk. That's not particularly what I'm suggesting. But rather to see those places where we limit ourselves, where we close ourselves off, out of an identification with an image of who we think we are. Now we don't have to be limited by that. There's concepts of place, of time, of ownership, of self-image, concepts of age. That ties into self-image also. You now We have an idea um, 25, or 35, or 50, or 70, or whatever, and then we think we're supposed to be a certain way because of how old we are. What does that mean? When you're sitting, how old is the thought that arises? Is the thought 50 years old? How old is the pain in the knee? Now, how old is the sound that we hear? When we drop back into the experience of the moment, it's timeless, it's ageless. Age is a concept. When we see that, then there's a possibility of tremendous vibrancy. We don't get trapped into that image, into that idea or concept. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. Of age, self image. The deepest concept, the one that is the most deeply conditioned in our lives, the one around which our lives revolve, is the concept of self. There's this idea that somewhere in here is me, the witness, the observer, the I, the ego, the self, the soul, something that is unshakably, unchangingly me, as separate from everyone else. And we live our lives revolving around this idea. And as long as we're attached to this concept, to this idea, our life is predicated on duality. Because if there's me, then there's everything other than me, and there's no way out of that. Kalu Rinpoche is a famous, very old Tibetan meditation master one of his teachings, he said, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion in the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts, of ideas. There is a reality, and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. Being nothing, we are everything. That is all. I'd like to give you an image to perhaps help to understand this idea of self and selflessness, what that actually means. Is there anybody who isn't familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper? You will know, you will know what the Big Dipper looks like up in the sky. So you go out at night and you look up at the sky, and you see that constellation of stars the Big Dipper. I'd like to ask you a question. Is there really a Big Dipper up there? Is there a Big Dipper? (laughs) There's no Big Dipper. There's certain stars in a certain pattern, and we call the pattern Big Dipper. As an experiment tonight, try going out. You can see the Big Dipper from here this evening. Try going out and looking up at the sky and not seeing the Big Dipper. (laughs) It's very difficult. It's very difficult not to separate out that group of stars and make it into some entity, because we've been so conditioned to see it as the Big Dipper. It's our concept which separates those stars out from all the other stars in the sky. We've separated out that constellation. If we do that with the Big Dipper, You can imagine how difficult it is not to separate out this constellation of experience. What is this self? It's a constellation of elements, of material elements, of mind elements. It's a constellation, it's a pattern, constantly changing certain experiences. But there's no Joseph, there's no self, there's no you, there's no me. Just like there's no Big Dipper. Big Dipper is a convenience. Joseph is a convenience for describing a pattern, and the pattern is not in reality separated out from everything else. It's totally interdependent. So just when we take the concept of Big Dipper away and those stars become part of the whole, in the same way when we can truly deeply understand that Joseph or self or I is a concept, then that separation of self and other also falls away, becomes part of the unity. What are the elements of this constellation that we call self? The Buddha gave a very clear description of the constellation that we call being, that we call I. And when we understand the different elements, the different stars of the constellation, we can begin to see that the constellation is simply a pattern, that the self is a pattern of changing elements. One group of elements, and in the Buddhist psychology they're called the ultimate realities, as opposed to the concepts or ideas we have of things, one of these groups of elements are the material, physical elements. You know, and they've been described in a lot of different ways. In the different sciences they're described, in, you know, in geology one way, and in physics, and in chemistry. Describing the physical world. In the traditional Buddhist texts, it's described very simply and traditionally in terms of the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And What those refer to are certain qualities of experience. Earth being the experience of hardness, extension, heaviness, stiffness, fire being heat or cold, air being movement, water being cohesion and dependent upon these primary four elements come color and odor and taste, some, some secondary qualities. Okay, so you go outside, and somebody asks you, what do you see? Say, oh, I see a tree, I see the grass, I see the sky, I see men, I see women. We don't see those things at all. We do not see tree or sky or grass or men or women. What the eye sees is color and form and light and shadow. And very quickly after that moment of seeing we put a concept on, we put a word on it, tree. And we we do it so automatically and it's so deeply conditioned that we think we actually see tree. What do you see? hand. How many of you cannot see hand? It's like not seeing Big Dipper. It's so, it's so conditioned in our mind to see the word. What we see is color and form. And immediately the word, the concept is put on. The material elements, the physical elements. Why is it important to drop down into the level of actual experience? Now, Another, another example, just so that it's clear in your mind. You're sitting. What are you sitting on? You know, what's the experience of sitting? I'm sitting on the floor. I'm sitting on a cushion. That, again, is a concept. What we experience, and, and check it out to see if it's true for yourself, what is the experience of sitting? What we can experience are certain sensations of hardness or softness or warmth. We can't experience floor or cushion. That's an idea that we put on to certain sensations. Okay, why is it important? The world seems to function extremely well with the world of concepts and ideas. It's important because the words and concepts that we use about things remain the same. The word tree is the same today, the same tomorrow, the same the next day. Hand. Same today, it's a hand tomorrow, it's a hand the next day. Joseph. Joseph today, tomorrow, next year. The concepts and words remain the same. The reality that they're pointing to is changing momentarily. To the degree that we're lost in the word or the concept, we don't experience the truth, the reality of this momentary change. And because we don't see that and experience it, we get attached. Because we're living in the world of concepts, we get attached to things because we don't see, we don't understand that everything is just momentarily arising and passing. And so it becomes essential to let go of our identification or involvement with the concepts and ideas exclusively, to drop into the level of actual experience in each moment, so that we can see and feel and know this arising and passing, the arising and vanishing of phenomena. Because when we don't see it, we stay attached. When we're attached, we suffer. Okay, The material elements, the physical elements, that's one of the ultimate realities, one aspect of this constellation that we call self or I. Another reality that's part of this constellation, it's the reality of consciousness. And consciousness means the knowing faculty, that which knows, knows a sight, a sound, a smell. The sight, is f- the color is physical, the smell is physical, the sensation is physical. The knowing of it is consciousness. This is important because even when we get the idea that the physical elements actually change, we, we develop enough mindfulness and attention to see, that the physical world is constantly changing. And so we begin, through that wisdom, not to hold on quite so tightly. But still, there's the sense that there's someone inside who's knowing it all. The identification with consciousness, with the knower, with the witness, with the observer. So we're still caught in that sense of self. As the mind gets more still and quiet, we can begin to observe that consciousness itself is a changing process. Consciousness is arising and passing in every moment. It's not some unchanging entity that I am. Rather, in every mind moment, there's knowing of an object. Knowing of sight comes and goes. Knowing of a sound comes and goes. Begin to see that consciousness, the knowing, is arising and vanishing many, many times in an instant. To see that, to experience that for oneself, it's like having the rug pulled out from under one in terms of what we identify with. Because we can no longer identify with consciousness as being I. It's continually disappearing. The third group of elements of this constellation is the physical elements, consciousness. The third group. It's a very interesting group because it very much conditions how we live and relate in the world. This group is called mental factors or mental qualities. These are qualities of mind which arise in different combinations in each moment of consciousness. As an example, there's a moment of seeing. That is, there's color hitting the eye and the knowing of it. And along along with that moment of consciousness, of seeing, may come, for example, greed. Greed is a mental factor. It has the nature to stick, sticking to the object. Greed is not I, and it's not self, and it's not mine. It's a factor of mind arising in a particular moment, functioning in its own way to stick, passing away. Anger another mental factor. has the nature to condemn. Not I, not mine, not self. There's no one who is angry. Rather, in a particular moment of consciousness, we hear something, it's unpleasant, we get angry. There's no one getting angry. In the moment of hearing, because it's unpleasant, if we're not mindful, anger arises. It has the function to strike against. Greed, hatred, delusion, all mental factors. Generosity, love, wisdom are all factors of mind. Generosity has the nature of giving. Love has the nature of goodwill, of openness. Wisdom has the nature of illumination, this, the seeing of what's happening. There is no one who is generous, and no one who is loving, and no one who is wise. Simply factors of mind arising and vanishing in these different combinations. So then people ask, well, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, if there's, no, there's no self, there's no I. Who comes to Barry to practice mindfulness? Who's being mindful? Who's being concentrated? Mindfulness is practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness is another factor of mind. It has the nature to notice what the object is. Mindfulness happens to have tremendous power in this constellation of elements, of physical elements, of consciousness, of mental factors. Mindfulness is an exceedingly powerful force. Why? Because mindfulness as a factor of mind Cannot coexist with any of the unwholesome factors. When mindfulness is present, greed, hatred, and delusion are not present. And so in every moment of mindfulness, the mind is being purified of those unwholesome factors which cause suffering. But there's no one being mindful, it doesn't belong to anybody. Rather, it's an impersonal factor which arises in certain moments and also passes away, as you may have noticed. (laughs) The more it's practiced, the stronger it gets, the more continuously it keeps arising. So, if what we are then is this constellation, you could think of this as a constellation of physical elements, of consciousness, of mental factors, Where does the idea of self come from? It's so deep. You go up to anybody on the street. Do you exist? Sure. (laughs) Is there a self? Sure. Where does the idea come from? Why is it so deeply conditioned? As you look and you investigate and you see the nature of this concept, where the concept of self, where it arises from, You begin to see that it arises from the workings of another mental factor. And this mental factor is called wrong view, and it's the view of mind which identifies with either the object, the sensation, the thought, the sound, or the knowing. My anger, my pain, my thought. I'm hearing, I'm seeing, that addition of the I in mind is extra to the experience. When a thought arises in the mind, the thought is thinking itself. It does not belong to anybody. It doesn't refer back to anybody. The thought is the thinker, but when we don't pay attention, Thoughts come and there's an immediate identification, I'm thinking, my thought. Or an emotion comes, I'm angry or I'm happy. Instead of seeing the suchness of it, things just as they are, a thought is thinking. Anger is angering. When mindfulness is present, wrong view is not present. And so, in every moment of mindfulness, again, this concept of self that comes from identification with things is falling away, is weakening. Can you get, can you make the, the transfer from seeing the Big Dipper up in the sky and the concept that we put onto the pattern of stars? down here to the concept that we have of Joseph, or self, or each one of you, that we put onto the constellation of different elements. And again, it's not so much to think about it when you are paying attention to experience what is it that's happening. In any moment, there's either seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, sensing, or mind objects. That is what's happening in every moment. It's the constellation of elements, and they're happening in a pattern. And then we put the name on the pattern and get caught by the name. Me. There's one more of the ultimate realities. Physical elements, consciousness, mental factors. That's the constellation of this being, what we call being. There's one more which is the most subtle aspect of the Buddhist teaching and enlightenment. And it's the experience of this last one that makes possible real freedom of mind. And this has been called different things. It's been called the unconditioned, or nirvana, or the unborn. A whole a long list of names. And let's play with another image for a moment. Imagine, imagine a sphere and all conditioned experience is on the surface of the sphere. Everything. All the physical elements and all thoughts and emotions and ever, the world, the galaxies, the whole universe. The universe of physical, physical elements and mind elements. Everything that can possibly be thought of or imagined or whatever is on the surface of the sphere. What we do just like we do when we look up at the sky, we separate out one tiny part, one tiny collection of experiences from this whole, and we call that tiny little section, tiny little collection of experience, we call that me. That's who I am. And everything else on this sphere, all other experience, is other than me, outside of me. Now for a moment, consider the possibility of the center of the sphere, the center point. That center point has no dimensions, it has no width, it has no breadth, it has no height. That's what a point is. You could think of it as the zero point, the zero center. When the mind attains a perfect balance, that is no reaching out, no pushing away, not even to the slightest, a perfect, a perfect equipoise, equilibrium, when the mind attains that perfect balance comes the possibility of the mind opening to the zero center. It's the mind going beyond mind. From that perspective, from the perspective of the zero center, it becomes very clear that we are not one little collection of things on the surface. From that zero center, the unity of all experience is obvious. There is a reality, we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. Being nothing, we are everything. When we no longer identify with any one part of experience, and that means giving it all up, not reserving one little part, when we don't identify with anything not with consciousness not with thoughts not with mental factors not with physical elements when we come to that zero center when we understand this we see we are nothing and being nothing we are everything that's where the practice is going i know from hour to hour, you may wonder where it's going. (laughs) That's why it's important to understand that we're not about creating another kind of experience. Because that's still within the realm of conditioned phenomena which we identify with. It doesn't matter. You know, we have this sense of Everything referring back to to me, to self, like this. You know, two hands coming in a V. Mostly what people (coughs) want to do is make this very wide. You know, cosmic. You know, know, just everything. Big me. (laughs) That's not what we're doing. What we're doing in the practice is to go from this to that. Instead of referring all experience back to self beginning to see every experience just as it is. To see thought as thought, and sound as sound, and sight as sight. That's what creates the balance of mind out of which the opening to the unconditioned can happen. And it's from that seeing, from that understanding, that our view of this constellation of the world is radically transformed. So, as we practice, in every moment of attentiveness, the balance is being strengthened. What we're doing is learning the proper relationship to experience, not creating particular experiences. For that reason, whatever arises in practice is totally fine. Because the balance can be established with any object, with any experience. So what we're practicing is this balance, this openness, which there's no grasping, no resisting. Out of the balance comes illumination. Do you have any questions? <laughs> <laughs> yes? What is it about the nature of mindfulness that automatically gets um, rid of illusion and It's defined as that quality of mind, of noticing, in which there's no grasping, there's no condemning, there's no identifying. It's that quality of bare attention. When the mind is like a a mirror, is a mirror greedy with what comes in front of it? Is it angry? Does it identify with it? Now, it just reflects what's there. It's that, that quality of mind. Yes?
1: Yes? Yeah. Uh, I have a couple of questions that are forming. Uh, one is when we're talking about the zero point, <clears throat> the different traditions attribute in a sort of metaphorical way certain qualities to that realization that one might call, uh, although in, in your terminology it's not being called consciousness, but in some sense that is attributed to this realization. Is, is there anything, I mean, one you know, use language like one sees or one knows, at that right. point can you
0: talk about a wider experience of consciousness? The, or, the, the description <coughs> of that experience is extremely difficult because it is beyond consciousness. It's when the mind opens, which is why in in traditional Buddhist texts it's described as the unborn, the unformed, the uncreated, the unconditioned, <laughs> Just one thing to play with. You, you could perhaps, and there's, there's actually not much, not much point in thinking about it, because it doesn't serve any purpose. But if you wanted to think about it, <laughs> you might think of it in terms of the isness of non-being. And an analogy for that, a very clear analogy, is zero. Zero is a very potent number in the number system. It's very powerful. And yet it's not a thing. It's not like any of the other numbers. And everything times zero becomes zero. But I would you could think and discuss and collect a lot of opinions about this. I would really suggest that for all of us, we practice and open to it.
1: Could I just ask the second question? There's a description of anger and the mental state and so on that's just arising. And then I'd like you to bridge that we are, at some level, wholly responsible for creating mental state. That seems to work too, and I was wondering if you could connect those understanding.
0: Okay. To say that different mental states or thoughts just arise is not quite accurate. They arise, everything arises, because of certain conditions. Everything has conditions behind it. And that's exactly why there's a possibility of coming to freedom. Because when we understand the causes, or the conditions, behind what arises, then there's a possibility of stopping to create the conditions which cause phenomena to arise. It's like A fire will burn as long as there's wood in it, and as long as we keep fueling the wood into the fire, the fire continues to burn. When we stop fueling, putting the wood in, when we stop creating the conditions, the fire goes out. The Buddha talked of how desire and ignorance are the fuel for conditioned existence. It's what keeps the mind from opening to the unconditioned. And we see that, so then the practice arises of not fueling or not supporting desire and ignorance, which is what happens in every moment of attention, of mindfulness. So that didn't exactly answer your question, I think. <laughs> um, I think more to the point of your question, is the understanding of karma and how particular mental factors bring about certain results. When we understand this, then there's a responsibility. We, we become responsible for the unfolding you know, of our lives and our experience. When action is done based on the motivation of greed, or hatred or delusion, that brings about certain results. It's like planting seeds. Right? When we act based on generosity or love or wisdom, that's like planting other seeds. When we understand this, we see that it's not that our experience is not just subject to chaotic laws. When we plant an apple seed, we don't get a mango. Right? You get an, it's, it's lawful just as our unfolding experience is lawful and therefore the responsibility is with understanding the process. I hope that helps a little. Have you personally had this experience at the zero point or are you talking about something only the Buddha and a handful of saints have experienced? It can be experienced at different levels. And it's like the first glimpse of it is, in the Buddhist tradition it's what eliminates, the first glimpse of it eliminates the defilement of belief in self, belief in I, and, uh, and doubt, and one other there are still other defilements left, like desire, like anger, like ignorance, like a whole bunch of others. And so the path is progressive. You practice and you have this first glimpse, first just mm, glimpse, which eradicates these defilements. And you still have to go back and practice more. And the second one eradicates further defilements. Many people have experienced this first, this first glimpse it's not, it's not out of the range of possibility. Yourself. It's not so, it's not so extraordinary. It's well within people's capacity. It's still just the beginning. Right? It's still a long way to go, but it sets the direction. The direction at that point becomes unalterable. And so it's really to know that what we're doing on the profoundest levels is absolutely possible. You know, it's not just for, you know, people living in the caves or something.
1: When you say that the direction becomes unalterable, it elicits a lot of fear. Can you explain why that
0: would be? I think it's probably the factors of. Desire, (laughs) which get afraid (laughs) because it means the ultimate end of desire, of grasping. It's fear of the the unknown. Pardon?
1: well personal freedom right right but but um, like that personal that's freedom. like the and big dipper
0: saying it's afraid of losing its big dipper ship <laughs> there never was a big dipper see that it, i understand and it's true we are there is fear of losing this sense of self <laughs> because we don't see that there never was a self to begin with it's an idea in our minds and until we see that, there is a fear. It's a fear that we're going to be giving something up. <laughs> but, but when we drop into the experience of things, we see that it never was. Of
1: myself, it keeps me alive. True. <laughs> and yet, uh,
0: <laughs> you know, I hesitate to to talk to parinibbana, which is the word that he used. Is the word which describes what happens at the death of a fully enlightened being. Well <laughs> I mean I can I can certainly tell you what's in the texts. <laughs> but you know from my point of view and from yours I think that let's see